0: We continue our journey through the book of Acts, and we're getting uh, just about to the halfway point. We've got 28 chapters to get through. We're now in chapter 13, and we are fully and completely into the Pauline half of Acts. We've been talking a lot about Peter. We've been hearing sermons from Peter. We've been seeing the miracles and healings of Peter, but now Luke has brought us fully to The Pauline part, to Paul's part of the book of Acts, it's actually more like two-thirds. Peter is going to make a guest appearance a little bit later in Acts chapter 15, but here in Acts chapter 13, this is a crucial, crucial passage because Luke is going to construct the ministry of Paul and the preaching of Paul and the call of Paul in such a way that it is opening up the gospel message to the Gentile world. This is huge. In fact, it would not be an overstatement to say that without Acts chapter 13 and without Paul being who Paul was and Luke being who Luke was, you would not be sitting in this building today. Did you get that? If Paul wasn't who he was and if Luke wasn't who he was, it's very possible that you wouldn't be sitting in this building here on Sabbath morning to worship God. And so we stand today in the direct cascade of the waterfall that soaks us in the grace of God and Christ that we just heard so beautifully sung about. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, draw us into your word, draw us into yourself, draw us into your spirit, and then, Father, send us out, extend us to others, that it might not just be a me or an I, but an us and a we. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all the saints of God say with me. Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Just this week, I had someone point out to me something that I had never heard or seen before, and it's on the screen there. It says, if you replace the I with we, illness becomes wellness. Can somebody say amen? Amen. If we take away the I and we substitute the we, then the illness becomes health and becomes wellness. And this, in many ways, is exactly how Luke paints what's taking place in the early church. They grow and they become a bigger us and a bigger we and a bigger our. And Luke paints, as we talked about last week, this this continual story, this ongoing narrative of growth coupled with opposition. The church is growing, and then it is opposed. The church is growing, and then it is opposed. The message is growing and gaining influence, and then it is opposed. The last week that we were together, we looked at Acts chapter 12, which was the opposition of Herod. You might think of it this way. uh, Acts chapter 12 is is Roman opposition against the message. Acts chapter 13 is religious opposition against the message. And Luke's going to tell the same story. He's going to say there was opposition, but the church prospered, the word prospered, and the message prospered. There is no advance for the gospel without opposition. If there's not opposition, something is wrong, because every time we see the gospel growing, the message growing, and the church growing in the book of Acts, it's always with significant opposition. Now, let me show you something very interesting. Look at Acts chapter 12. You're there in 13. The last time that we were together, we took a look at this verse. It's the way that Acts chapter 12 wraps up. And it says in verse 24, But the word of God grew and multiplied. Can somebody say amen? Right? Acts chapter 12 opens up with Herod, right? The vassal king of Rome on a rampage. He's put a sword through James. He's on the verge of putting a sword through Peter. And it looks grim for the church right? But Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation because as we come to the end of Acts chapter 12, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the word of God is growing and multiplying. Now look at Acts 13. We're going to go through some religious opposition here, but look at how Acts 13 ends. Skip all the way to the end of Acts chapter 13 and notice verse 49. Luke is telling the same story. Not now governmental opposition, not now political opposition, not now external opposition, but internal opposition. Opposition from the religious sector itself, and look at how Luke wraps this part up, Luke, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 49, it says, and the word of the Lord was being, what's the next word? Spread throughout all the region, Right? So Acts 12, there's opposition, but he concludes it by saying, hey, Herod couldn't stop the word. Acts 13, we're going to see significant religious opposition, and Luke concludes the very same way. He says, even the religious establishment could not stop the message that God was bringing to the world through fragile, ordinary, average, broken people. Any average person out there want to say amen to that? All right, so illness becomes wellness when we substitute the I with a we. And we're going to see just how ragtag this group was. A few more words of introduction as we continue our study of Acts to kind of give us an orientation as to where we are. Well, here we are at a transition point. We've mentioned this several times before. Luke has been preparing us for this transition. And the transition takes place in several places. First of all, we're transitioning, as we've mentioned, largely from Peter to largely Paul. We've also transitioned away from the twelve. Acts, the opening seven, eight, nine chapters centers around the twelve apostles. And of course, Judas uh, uh, had committed suicide and there was a big deal there in Acts chapter one about, okay, well, who's going to replace him? And Matthias was chosen. We've also moved from largely a Jewish proclamation, now more toward the Gentile proclamation. And a very interesting thing for us here is that the center of influence for the church is going to move from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay, Jerusalem to Antioch, and most of our story here takes place in Antioch, not in Antioch in Syria, but as we mentioned last week, there were two Antiochs, Antioch in Syria, which is just north of Jerusalem, and also Antioch in Pisidia, or what we today would call Turkey. And our main story today is going to take place in Antioch in modern Turkey. Now, as Luke tells the story, I had never seen this before until I just studied this this week as Luke tells the story, he's clearly trying to draw Theophilus's thinking. Remember, the letter was originally written to Theophilus and to whoever Theophilus would share it with. He's clearly trying to legitimize Paul's ministry. Now, I think that we don't sufficiently appreciate just how seemingly dangerous and seemingly unconventional Paul's ministry was. I mean, he felt far too comfortable with Gentile peoples as far as many in the church were concerned. He was too comfortable with them. He would sit with them. He would visit with them. He would talk with them. He would eat with them. And many Jews were quite uncomfortable with the whole ministry of Paul. They felt he was too liberal. He was too accommodating. He wasn't Jewish enough. And this is gonna come to a full head when we get to Acts chapter 15. But at this point in the story, it's really cool, and again, I had never seen this until just this week. Luke appears to be crafting the ministry of Paul purposefully as a sort of recapitulation or a restatement of the ministry of Peter. He's already introduced Peter as kind of the hero of the story, right? Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, thousands are baptized. Peter says to a lame man at the gate of the temple, get up, and the guy gets up and starts walking. Peter's arrested not once, not twice, but thrice, and angels get the guy out of prison. I mean, Peter is unqualifiedly the man in the early chapters of Acts. Now look at what Luke does. As we get to Acts chapter 13 and beyond, he tells a similar story, but this time with Paul. Just as Peter preached with power, we're going to see here in Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches with power. Just as Peter rebuked a magician, you will remember the the magician Simon, who was a Samaritan. And uh, he wanted to purchase the power of God, and Peter rebuked him. Right? Today in Acts chapter 13, we're going to see Paul rebukes a magician by the name of Bar Jesus. Peter, this is a hugely uh, significant one, Peter was responsible for the conversion of a sympathetic Roman citizen, a Roman soldier in fact, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Today we're going to learn about a man uh, by the name, uh, let me get his name uh, correct here, his name is Sergius Paulus. And Luke wants us to know he was an intelligent man, Sergius Paulus, also converted. And finally, Peter performs acts of healing, and Luke wants you to know that Paul also performed acts of healing. So it seems with great intentionality, Luke is telling the story so that the, the listening audience, Theophilus primarily, but also anyone else who would read this epistle would feel that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was every bit as important and as legitimate as Peter's ministry to the Jews in and around Jerusalem. With that sort of in mind, we ended with this quotation the last time we were together. We're going to start with it today. Acts chapter 12, says John Stott in his The Message of Acts, opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the Word of God triumphing. What did the church say to that? I tell you, I'm saying amen to that. Indeed, one cannot fail to admire the artistry with which Luke depicts the complete reversal of of the church's situation. With that in mind, let's go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. We're in for a great one today. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church, there was at Antioch, we're going to hear a lot more about Antioch now, there were certain prophets and teachers, and then he gives us a list, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord, and they fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, and they sent them away. This week I was reading in a commentary on Acts by a German theologian named Gerhard Krodel, and I couldn't... I couldn't resist sharing this quotation with you. As Acts 13 opens up, we are introduced to what can only be described as a ragtag band of leadership. I mean, this is a motley crew if there ever was one. You've got a Levite from Cyprus. That's the north of Africa. You've got, or not the north of Africa, that Cyrene is the north of Africa. So we've got a Levite from Cyprus, the island that they're about ready to go to. We've got a black man a North African from Cyrene, some guy who's a boyhood friend of Herod Antipas, and a Pharisee educated under Gamaliel, and these are all acknowledged to be spiritual dynamos. Beloved, one of the great things about the church is that from the very inception, it was not made up of a homogenous entity of people that all look the same, talk the same, act the same, from the same social demographics, from the same educational demographics, from the same sort of familial pedigree. This was a wild group of people who were unified by a confidence in God and in Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? That's what I look, when I look out here, I see the same thing. Some of you are builders, and some of you are doctors, and some of you are teachers, and some of you are dark-skinned, and some of you are light-skinned, and some of you are male, and some of you are female, and some of you have lived in Kingscliff for your whole life, and your family's family lived in Kingscliff for the area their whole life. And others of you have just moved here recently. Different people from different countries, from different situations, and yet when God puts his hand on it, he can bless it. Can you say amen? So they call together this ragtag group of prophets, They put the hand of God on them. They fast and they pray and they send them out. Kick them out of the nest. And look at this. I love this. Look at verse 3, how it ends. It says that the church sent them away. Who sent them away? I'm going to ask you again. Who sent them away? Look at verse 4. So being sent away by the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to ask you again. Who sent them away? The answer is both. And that's what I love here, that in one verse, Luke can say with a straight face, oh, the church sent these people away on a missionary journey. And in the very next verse, he can say with an equally straight face, oh, that was the Spirit of God that sent them away. Because in the book of Acts, we see this absolute, you know, inexorable connection between what the Spirit is doing and what the church is doing. If the Spirit's doing a work, the church is doing a work. And if the church is doing a work, the Spirit's doing a work. The Spirit and the church, and the church and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the church, and the church and the Spirit, one and the same. He wants you to know, oh yeah, it was the church that sent them away. In the very next verse, he says, it was the Holy Spirit that sent them away. Beloved, I want our little humble church here on the southern end of the Gold Coast to be in that kind of connection with the Holy Spirit. That when we're doing something, whether it's setting up an booth in our local mall, or we're knocking on a door, or we're giving out a Bible study, or an invitation to church, when we're doing something, it's the same thing the Holy Spirit is doing. And if the Holy Spirit is working in some area, some nook, some cranny of our community, that our church is also there working. Can you say amen? I just want that connection between us and the Spirit. And I challenged the pastoral staff this week. I said, Daniel and Jared, we need to pray. And I'm challenging you as a church to pray. Let's be deep in prayer. I love one of my favorite statements from Ellen White is where she says, Satan does not fear unprayed for plans. We can plan, we can plot, we can strategize. We've got our small group leaders orientation meeting this Sabbath and the whole thing will be worse than dung if it's not prayed up and prayed with passion by the members and the leadership of the church. Can you say amen? They didn't just send these people out. It said that they fasted and they prayed and they put hands on them. And when they were sure that they were prayed up and that they were in synchronicity with the Spirit, they sent them out. And Luke says it was the Spirit that sent them out. Now, when they go out, as we just mentioned, the very first thing they encounter is significant opposition. Okay? Verse 4. Here we go. Verse 5. Here we go. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues. I love this. The gospel doesn't leave things intact. The gospel doesn't leave things intact. Right? If you had... A life before the gospel, your life after the gospel is not intact with your life before. Some of you had friends before the gospel, and all of a sudden you turned your life over to Jesus, you made him number one in your life, and you started trusting and looking to him, and you looked around, and many of your former friends and your former life and your former situation, they disappeared. That which was whole and complete and intact, when the gospel came, it was no longer intact. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, did you think I came to send peace? Are you kidding? I didn't come to bring peace, he said. What did he come to bring? He came to bring a sword. A sword is for cutting. It's for severing. It's for separating this from that. And here these people are called, this ragtag group of people, and they're not all to get together and form a great big university called Loma Linda. Right? Or Avondale. What's that town down there? Newcastle. We're all going to live in the same place and rather than being the salt of the earth, we'll be a great big salt lick. And the, the world will come to us for our, you know, corporate and conglomerate wisdom. Oh no. They were not to stick together. They were to be sent out. The gospel does not leave things intact. They come to the synagogue of the Jews in Salamis. They had this guy named John as their assistant. I love verse 5. Sam pointed this out last night as we read through the chapter. Sam came over to the house, had a little Thai food that my wife cooked up, and uh, he said, hey, I like that there. It says that John in verse 5 was the assistant. We see mentorship in the early church. We see people with intentionality drawing new leaders and, and people that will be the future leaders of the church. I think we don't do enough of that in this church. I was thrilled... That Carolyn was asked to do the children's story, and she got cheeky, and she got her daughter to do it. Is that what you did? I don't think we do enough mentorship of our young people in this local church. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm doing my best over there in the teen Sabbath school class, and uh, the ratio of words that I say to the words they say are about 10,000 to one. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it, and I'm committed absolutely committed to the young people of this church are you committed to the young people of this church okay well the well if we really want the young people of this church to be involved and passionate about what's taking place in here they're going to need to do more than just come and sit down and watch the preacher they're going to need to be invested they're going to need to be involved and they're going to be mentored they need to become our assistants and i'm not talking about when they're 25 26 27 and 28 i mean when they're 12 10 11 13 14 15 16 and beyond can you say amen church and I know that two of my oldest members here, where's Agnes? You're going to be happy with that, aren't you, Agnes? Happy to have the young people doing something. Absolutely. He was the assistant, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, who's a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, that means son of Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, and I love this, an intelligent man, Serg- Sergius Paulus. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So they hear that Paul's in town. They hear that Barnabas is in town. And so the proconsul, which was basically the governor of the island, or at least the governor of Salamis. The map's not super easy to see, but this is Paul's first missionary journey. They're here in Antioch. Jerusalem would be right here. Here's Syria. Here's modern-day Turkey. Here's the Bosphorus Strait. Europe is that way, right? And so what they're going to do on this first missionary journey is sail to the island of Cyprus. By the way, this is where Barnabas is from. Barnabas is from Cyprus, so in many ways he's saying, hey, let's go back to my town. Let's go back to my family. Let's go back to my community. I want my community to hear the gospel. And Paul's like, sure, let's go. Let's go to your hometown. Let's go preach the gospel there. And the first place they show up is this place called Salamis. And there's an intelligent man there by the name of Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus pulls up into town. And the word on the street is that there's these new, fresh, exciting gospel preachers that have come into town. And immediately, the local false prophet, Bar-Jesus, becomes envious and jealous. And he's trying to protect and insulate Sergius Paulus, the head of the island, or at least the head of Salamis, from the influence of these people. Paul recognizes immediately that he is not wrestling with Bar-Jesus. He's wrestling with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. I had a meeting just this week with one of you sitting in this room. You were under attack, and I said to you, and I'll say it again, I'll say it to the whole church. If you're going through difficult times, if you're going through opposition, this is the way that Luke paints the picture. It's not just human opposition that we're up against here. If you place yourself firmly on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his word, you are not only fighting a human battle. There is a satanic, demonic conspiracy against you and against your family. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's exactly what takes place here. As soon as these guys rock up and the the governor of the island hears and he's interested, he calls for Paul and Barnabas. This guy immediately tries to discredit. Now watch what happens, man. Paul was no mealy mouth preacher, I'll tell you that right now. Verse 8 But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, he withstood them. There you go. There's the opposition. They're sent out, but here comes opposition, not just from a man, not just from a Jewish false prophet, but from Satan himself. And Paul's going to say so. Withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Look at this. This is one of the great lines. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Oh, man, I wish I could see this in a movie. This would be a great movie scene right here. He looked intently at him, and he said, look at this. this is, he's no weenie. He's no wuss, Saul, Paul. Oh, full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight way of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you're going to be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. Can you see that in your mind's eye, man? Would that make a great movie scene? And immediately, a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I love this because just three chapters before, four chapters before, it was Saul who was blind and looking for someone to lead him around by the hand. Saul knows what he's doing. He knows that sometimes the best way to see is to become blind, to become blind to what you used to know, to become blind to what you used to think, to become blind to what you used to value, to become blind to the things that used to be important to you. Sometimes that is the very best way to see. What does the old hymn say? I was blind, but now what? I see. So Saul here is not cursing him indefinitely. That's not God's MO. God's not out to kill people, curse people, and make them blind. When Jesus showed up on the earth, he didn't make one person blind, but he made several blind people see. Can you say amen? So this is not an MO for God to be cursing and and punishing and hurting people. No. Saul says, hey, I know about blindness. I know about thinking you're doing the right thing when you're actually doing the wrong thing. I have been there in that moment of darkness and despair and you need to be blind for a time so that eventually when that blindness recedes you will be able to see as you are boom he's blind and he's looking for someone to lead him around by the hand and I'm sure with a smile of satisfaction Saul could watch Simon bar or bar Jesus walking away and say I hope he ends up where I ended up I hope his blindness leads him to see what I've learned to see well, then the proconsul believed. I love Luke. In classic understatement here, he just says, That worked. <laughs> Don't you love it? Yeah, he believed. That worked. When he saw what had been done, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right, so now they move on. They move on from Cyprus here. They go briefly to Paphos, and they're going to head here. They're going to sail north and west. Verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set to sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Here we are, right? Southern Turkey. Perga in Pamphylia. They came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath Sabbath day and sat down. Now, it's not on this map, but Saul is from a town called where? Where is he he from? Saul is from Tarsus. And Tarsus, if it was on a map, would be about right here right? So, so Saul's in his home territory. He knows the Jewish thinking of, of the people in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. In other words, he's, he's, he's in his home area. Not exactly, he's about 200 miles away from his actual house, but he knows how these people think. He knows what these people value. He knows how to speak their language. And we're going to see just how uh, he leverages that knowledge here. Verse 4, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And when they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them and said, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. They recognized that there were visitors there, Jewish visitors. And so, in an act of providence, they invite Paul to preach. Paul, do you have anything you'd like to say? In fact, he did. Verse 16, then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said... What are the first three words out of his mouth? Men of, what's the next word there? Okay, let's say it together again. Men of, what's the word? Israel. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times over the course of this sermon. By the way, this is the first and only sermon. This is the first sermon that Paul's recorded as preaching in the whole book of Acts. There's 30 speeches in the book of Acts, and Saul records, or Paul, 11 of them. Okay? Okay. This is the first and only one that's recorded of how Saul preached in a synagogue. That's it. We're told that he went into other synagogues and that he preached. And Luke, obviously the book can't be, you know, hundreds of chapters. So you get a feel that when Paul went into a synagogue, whether it's here or in Berea or in Iconium, this is the kind of thing he would say because he's speaking to Jewish people. People he knows how they think. He knows their language. He knows their background. He know, so he, he knows what to say. And he goes in... And he opens his mouth and the first thing he says is, men of Israel. Not once, not twice, not three, not four times when Paul tells the gospel story to Jews, he centers it on Israel. He centers it on Israel. This is hugely important and we're going to return to this point in just a second. But I'm going to preempt it by letting you know this. We can preach the gospel with all of our power, with all of our passion, with all of our enthusiasm, listen to me very carefully, but if we're not speaking the language of the people to whom we're talking, we might as well be speaking another language. We might as well be talking Greek. We might as well be talking some you know, native language from a, a, some far-flung island. If we are not using the ideas, the literature, the language, the, the, the pictures of the people to whom we're talking, we miss the point. When Paul speaks to Jews, what does he speak like? He speaks like a Jew. Israel, 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 Israel. He's going to make his point. We'll come back to that. You'll see just how powerful it is. Verse 17, the God of this people, here it is a second time, Israel, chose our fathers. Notice the incorporation, not your fathers. He includes himself. He's a Jew. Our fathers. And exalted the chosen people. And exalted the people that dwelt uh, as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. Now, Paul is going to tell a history here of the Old Testament. And it's a very truncated history. It's much shorter than the history that Stephen told back in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's sermon is like 50 verses long. Saul's is like 15. It's very short. And it's, it's frankly unusual to see the points that he brings out and that he highlights. But let me just give you the punchline here. Saul tells the story, and he races to get to a guy named David. A fine name if I do say so myself. He races to get to the story of David. Watch, I mean, watch, how, watch how quickly he just breezes over the entire Old Testament. Verse 18. For a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Sam and I had a good laugh about that last night. I mean, that's basically a summary of the first five books of the Bible. For 40 years, he put up with them. Next book, please. Verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Verse 20, after that, he gave them the judges for about 400 years and 50 years until Samuel the prophet. I mean, he's just racing through history. He put up with them for 40 years, and then there was the judges for 400 years, and then there was 50 years, and we get to Samuel. Afterward, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Racing, racing, racing through the Old Testament. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, I love that, when he had removed him, he got rid of Saul. Saul didn't serve the purposes that God had intended for him to serve. He raised up for them, what's his name? David. I mean, look at, look at that. A, that's a fairly short version of much of the Old Testament. It's about three and a half verses. He gets to David. He raised up for them David as, what was David? He was a king to whom also he gave testimony and he said, and it's as if Paul just wanted to get to this verse. I have found David, the son of Jesse. Say these words with me if you would. A man after my own heart. That is for Saul. In this particular situation, in this particular context, I keep saying Saul, Paul, that is for Paul. In this particular context, in this particular situation, that is the summary of the Old Testament. God put up with them for 40 years. There was 450 years of judges. Then there was Saul, and then there was David. David was the king. Oh, and by the way, he says, David was the guy who had a heart after God's own heart. And look at this huge jump that he makes From David, verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for, here it is a third time, Israel, a Savior, and what's his name? Jesus, look at that history. What a strange way to tell the history of Israel. I guarantee you wouldn't tell it that way. I wouldn't tell it that way. Hey, what's the history of the Old Testament? Oh, well, there was that 40-year thing, and then there were the judges for like 450 years, and then there was that 40-year thing, and then there was the Saul thing, and then there was, uh, uh, th- then there was the Samuel thing, then there was the Saul thing, and then there was David. And David was a man after God's own heart, and then he says, and after David, was Jesus. Quite a selective history. Saul Paul, excuse me, is getting to the point. He's getting to the point that Jesus is the true king of Israel. I want to say that again. Jesus is the true king of Israel. What made David a mighty king was not his, you know, his prowess on the battlefield. What made David a mighty king was not his economic prowess or even the restraint that he showed when he could have whacked Saul many times. Now this, this is not what made David so special. This is not what made David such a great king. This was not the thing that God looked down and said, he's so great with economics, he's so great with a sword, he's such a great leader, he's a man after my own heart. No, there was something about the spirit of David. Something about his brokenness. Something about his woundedness. Something about his service. He said, that guy has my heart. And that foreshadows, that anticipates the one who would come. In Psalm 40, verse 8, it says, speaking of Jesus, Psalm 40, one of the ancient prophecies, Behold, I come, it is written in the scroll of the book of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Yes, your law is in my heart. Man, what a great way to tell the Old Testament story. Straight to David, straight to Jesus. Now look at this. Verse 24, after John had first preached, now he spends a little time on John the Baptist before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of there. It is again Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not the guy. Behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet. I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoes. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham. That's just another way of saying Israel. So really, he says it five times. Israel, 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 Abraham. And those among you who fear God, those weren't Jews. Those were proselytes. They were called God-fearers. A Gentile, when he became a Jew, was called a God-fearer. Verse 27, or he says at the end of verse 26, To you this word of salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, had fulfilled them in condemning Jesus. And though they found no cause for, his, for death in him, they, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. Now, I'm going to turn on my microphone here, David. You got me? You got me there, Moisha. I'm looking for Moesha. I'm running to the back. Here I come, putting you on the spot, girl. You ready for this? She didn't know I was going to do this. Moesha, what are the three elements of the gospel? Um, Jesus dying, Jesus raising from the dead. Excellent. Jesus dying, Jesus being buried, and say that last one. Jesus raising from the dead. Jesus being raised from the dead. Can the church say amen? That's what we learned in Sabbath school this morning. The church, the good news is not that Jesus died. That's actually really bad news. It would be terrible news if you got news suddenly that someone in your family had died, you wouldn't rejoice. Well, (laughs) depending on who it was, you probably wouldn't rejoice. Right? So the death is not good news. The burial is not good news. But verse 30, I don't know if you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible, marking in your Bible, scribbling in your Bible, doodling in your Bible, but if you are, you need to highlight, circle, underscore, underline hearts whatever you need to do to set this off to demarcate verse 30 because this is arguably the single most important verse in the entire book of acts and it's just a few short words but god raised him from the dead can the church say amen but god raised him from the dead he tells the story of david then he tells the story of John the Baptist, who announced that he wasn't the guy, but another guy was coming. And then he tells the story of the betrayal of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And then he says, but God raised him from the dead. And what's, what Paul will go on to do in the rest of his sermon is talk about the resurrection. That's all. He just, he, now that he's mentioned it, it's like he's, he's like a moth to a flame. He can't stop speaking about it. Look at this. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And he declares to you glad tidings that promise which he has made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, today you are my son, Uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34 and that he raised him up from the dead. No more to return to corruption. His body didn't see decay. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Verse 35. Therefore, he says in another psalm, I won't allow your holy one to see corruption or decay. Verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Four times in six verses, he was resurrected. He was resurrected. He was resurrected. He was resurrected. This is the story that he's telling. Several things here on the screen, and we'll land this plane. Not without a struggle does Satan allow the kingdom of God to be built up on the earth. The forces of evil are engaged in an unceasing warfare against the agencies appointed for the spread of the gospel. If you're a church member, that means that satanic agencies are arrayed against you and your family and your well-being and your health and your finances and against you. These powers of darkness are especially active when the truth is proclaimed. Whoo! It's almost enough to get you afraid, except that we serve a God who's far more powerful. The good news which bursts—this is N. T. Wright from Acts for Everyone—the good news which bursts out of this for the Gentiles is exactly this: the good news is that the Creator God has fulfilled His covenant promises to Israel, promises which always envisioned the whole world. It wasn't just for an isolated nomadic group of people. No. It is fatally easy for the church to tell the story of Jesus while simply ignoring the entire story of Israel. No way! This, is, this will only produce a shallow, sub-biblical, and ultimately dangerous theology. I don't know how many of you went to the North New South Wales camp meeting last year, but if you did... And you were in the meetings that I did in the Connections tent on Romans. You saw just how crucial it is when we tell the story of Jesus that we're telling the story of Israel. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, if you think you know the story of Jesus and you don't know how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel, I'm out on a limb. Here we go. I'm going to say it. You don't know the story of Jesus. You don't know it. At least you don't know it the way that Paul told it. You don't know it the way that Matthew told it, that Mark told it, that Luke told it, that what, And you might know it in your own simple, wonderful way. Hey, I'm not here to condemn you for knowing it in your own simple way. There's nothing wrong with that. But, beloved, if you've been sitting in a Seventh day Adventist church for two, three, four, five, 6, 10, 20 years, and you can't tell the story of Jesus the way that the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus, something is wrong. Amen. Nothing wrong with being a baby while you're a baby, nothing wrong with living at home when you're a teenager, right? But if you're a 35-year-old or a 40-year-old still living at home and can't hardly find the book of Nehemiah in your Bible, something is wrong. Now, if you're a 35- or a 40-year-old that just came into church last week or two weeks ago, Kim, you're off the hook. If you can't find the book of Nehemiah, you're fine, right? But I had lunch this last week with Sister Agnes, who's 97 years young, and I have a basic expectation of Agnes that she can find the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. Could you do that, Agnes? Of course she could, right? Right? Beloved, I want to tell you something. If we're telling the gospel story, we should tell it the way that the Bible actually tells it and not some figment of our imagination that we made up where Jesus is the nice guy that just shows up and makes everything right. No, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to a group called Israel. That is the story of the Bible. Can somebody say amen? You. Context, 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 beloved, I want to tell you. I don't know who you're talking to, but if you're talking to a tradie, Talk like a tradie, right? If you're talking to a professor, you talk like a professor. If you're talking to a teenager, as impossible as this seems, parents, try and talk like a teenager. If you're talking to a single mom, talk like a single mom. If you're talking to somebody from Indonesia, try to talk like an Indonesian. If you're talking to a medical doctor, try and talk like a medical doctor. If you're talking to a couple that's been married for longer than most of us have been alive, talk like that. Right? When Jesus spoke to Peter, James, and John, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. When Jesus spoke to a rich young ruler, he said, I'll give you treasure in heaven. When Jesus spoke to the woman sitting at the well, he said, I'll give you water so that you'll never be thirsty. What's he doing? He's always speaking the language of the people to whom he's talking. When Jesus spoke to the the Roman, and the Roman said, hey, look, I'm a man of authority just like you. Jesus knew the language he was speaking. Saul, Paul goes into the synagogue there, and he stands up to preach to those people in that situation, in that context. And I want to tell you, the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church doesn't live in first-century Palestine. I want to say that again. The Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church doesn't live in first-century Palestine. Right? We live in 21st-century Australia. And if 21st-century Australians can't understand what we're saying about the gospel, then we shouldn't expect them to accept what we're saying. Right? Are you hearing me? The way that we teach and preach the gospel has to make sense to people that are living today. If we think, oh, no, 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 then you do understand the Bible before we can explain it to them. Well, that's not going to work. We have to learn to speak the language of the culture in which we live. Saul did it. Paul did it. Jesus did it. Context, 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 context. Paul is setting up a system of signposts from David a thousand years before to John a mere 15 or so years earlier. And all the signposts point to one person, Jesus the Messiah, the Rescuer. If you're speaking to the trader, or you're speaking to the single mom or you're speaking to the teenager, speak their language. But the, the story always ends the same place, and that's at a man named Jesus. Any teenagers over there that aren't watching their little televisions want to say amen? Thank you. you. Paul's strategy is a challenge to us all to understand our, what is that word right there? To understand our audience well enough. Maybe sometime we'll have Sam come here and tell us a story of how he spent six years in Islamic ministry. Six years he spent in Islamic ministry. Traveling to places like Yemen and other places. Do you think that Sam showed up like me and just started preaching like I'm preaching? No way. That's not their language. It's not their context. It's not their situation. We have to figure out how do we speak to these people. I love this. We need to know our audience well enough to know how to tell them the story in a way that they will find compelling. How to set up signposts in a language that they can read. Can the church say amen to that? I'm not very good at this, but I'm trying to learn. Frankly, I'm just way too good at speaking to churchy people. I think I spend too much time speaking to churchy people. I'd love to see our church filled with double this many people, but only half of which are churchy people. And the church said, Amen. amen. If we're too good at speaking to churchy people, we'll forget how to speak to the people that live in the rest of the world. And that will be a disservice to us. We have to learn to speak their language. I spend probably two sessions a week down at the local skate park. Well, I've got to tell you, man, I've been going there now probably 15, 20 sessions down there over the course of the last several months at the Koolingatta Skate Park. And even though I'm 42 years young, I can still do a few tricks on a skateboard. And I go down there, and I just carry myself really quiet, really nice, really friendly, helping kids, giving them words of encouragement. And it's taken a little while. There's sort of a hard, crusty group out there, and then there's a harder and crustier group. But over time, they say, "Oh, this guy can skateboard. This guy's a nice guy." And now I go there. Oh, hey Dave, how you doing? How are things? Oh, yeah, things are going great. How's this? How's that? I'm developing a a relationship with people now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not dropping the F bomb and the S bomb and the. I'm not doing all that. But I know how to speak to skateboarders, and I don't speak to them like I'm speaking to you right now. Are you with me? How are we going to win these people? We've got to speak their language. Saul went into that synagogue and he knew exactly how to get to them. He said, Israel, 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 Abraham. Jesus said to the fishermen, fishes of men. Jesus said to the woman, water that will make you not thirsty. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I'll give you treasure. If we are only speaking churchy language, we will only be speaking to churchy people. Have I said enough about this? You. Yes. All right. Let's, let's land this plane. Let's land this plane. Look at this verse thirty nine last verse I'm, second to the last verse i 'm going to read you i 'm not going to go all the way to the end for those of you that are gauging how much time this is taken verse thirty nine and by him every no 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 verse thirty eight therefore, when Paul draws all of this to a close, the story of david resurrection, 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 four times when he draws it to a close verse thirty eight he says, therefore this is what i 'm really trying to tell you. Let it be known to you brethren that through this man is preached the forgiveness of sins. What's preached through this man, everyone? Forgiveness. You've got your connect cards in your hand right there. Jared, can you put one in my hand? I want you to take out your connect cards and I want to talk to you about forgiveness. Take out your connect cards. I want to talk to you about forgiveness. When Paul tells the gospel story, raise your hands nice and high. I've got my boys here handing out Connect cards. I want to talk to you about forgiveness today. Man, Paul told that story. Paul told that history. Paul delivered that context. But his punchline was forgiveness. I want to say it again. His punchline was forgiveness. Here's a clever little quote from N.T. Wright. I want to direct your attention to the screen. This isn't simply a history lesson with a new ending, says N.T. Wright. This is a history lesson which is rapidly turning into a warning. A warning. A warning. Something new is happening right under your nose, Saul is saying. Paul is saying. Something new is happening right under your noses. And unless you join in, you're going to miss out on this new thing that God is doing. God is doing a new thing. And that new thing is something that he planned and promised long before. When this happens, when this new amazing thing happens, it isn't just something that you might think about in long winter evenings and discuss over a drink with your friends, like the question of which was the best rock group in the last 30 years or what to do about crime or why the price of beetroot has dropped. No, 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 no. This is what he says. This is more like someone rushing into a hotel and shouting, the river is rising, the river is rising, there's just a few boats left. And if you don't want to swim for it, you'd better get in the boat. That's how we need to tell the gospel story, right? We're not just talking about business as usual. We're talking about life and death and cancer and disease and car accidents and pain and suicides. And people need rescuing and people need forgiveness. And if we don't learn how to speak forgiveness and we don't learn how to speak rescuing in their language, we might as well be speaking Spanish or Italian or some other dialect that they don't know. Right there at the top it says, I believe that Jesus is risen. If you don't believe that, man, I tell you, where's your hope? We had a beautiful anointing service last Sabbath for Judy, and I tell you, she said one of the most beautiful things to me, and it pierced my soul. That was was such a beautiful service last Sabbath when we anointed her. She was the one in the best condition in the whole room. I said, Judy, you should be anointing us. Here she is facing the specter of death right in the face with a smile and a happiness and a confidence and even a sense of humor and poise about the whole thing. How can somebody do that? How can somebody's body be riddled with disease and stare death right in the face? I'll tell you how, because they believe that Jesus is risen. You mark that. You say, I believe that. Number two says, I accept God's forgiveness of my sins. Beloved, this was the punchline for Paul and it's the punchline today. The punchline today is forgiveness is free and forgiveness is real. And there's not a person in this room who doesn't need it. You guys going to sing a song? Come on up. Come and sing. Forgiveness is free, forgiveness is real, and there's not a person in this room who doesn't need it. You know what I said to the teenagers this morning in Sabbath school? Between bits of, of me trying to persuade them to listen? Here's the punchline. I said, the bottom line is that Jesus is better at life than you. Jesus was better at life. Jesus was more kind. He was more compassionate. He was more generous. He was more magnanimous. Jesus was more gracious. He would, Jesus did life better than you. And he offers to be your representative. He offers to forgive you for your sins and be your representative. And today I want to let you know, I don't know what you've done, but I got an email just this morning and it crushed my soul. Woke up this morning, pulled out my phone, which is still lost, got an email from a good friend of mine who's a counselor in the United States telling me this horrific story that it pains me to even bring up. A woman who trusted a, pr- a, a, a person who was a senior leadership in her local church, and he led her down the path of sexual predation. It's a terrible, disgusting, and I wish I could tell you that was the only story I'd ever heard like that. Let me tell you, man, there's broken people in this church right here. Broken people in this church right here, and I tell you, You need forgiveness. I don't know how deep your well is. Some of your wells are about that deep. Some of your wells are about that deep. Some of your wells are so deep that not even Phil Slade could dig down there. You've got some deep wells. And you need forgiveness and you know it. You check that. Number three says, I will continue in the grace of God. I don't know any other way to continue. It says there in verse 43, they continued in the grace of God. That's the only way to continue. And I'm inviting you to continue in the grace of God. Continue in the goodness of God. Number four says, I know that I'm called to spread this word of resurrection, grace, and forgiveness. I hope you know that. And I hope you know that you're called to do it in a language that's meaningful to the person to whom you're speaking. And finally, the final verse there in Acts, the final section says that they were all filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And you say, I want to be filled with joy and I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if any of that resonates with you, but as I studied Acts 13, I said, I know that Jesus is risen. I know that I need forgiveness. I will continue in the grace of God. I know that I need to be spreading this word of grace and forgiveness and resurrection. And I want to be joyful and I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If that resonates with you, I invite you to fill that in And as we sing our final song, you hand those cards in, hand them in with prayer, hand them in with humility, and hand them in with sincerity, because Jesus, here it is right here, because Jesus is risen. Can the church say amen? Hallelujah.